Kia orana, ko Lydia Lewis, teia. This is Pacific Waves, Akarongo Mai. Coming up... Things happen in the blink of an eye, it's quite difficult. Seven prisoners are still on the run in Papua New Guinea. We speak with the Correctional Services Commissioner who says some of those who were shot dead may have been innocent. And... But, you know, they keep killing each other. Closed and controversial, Pagera Mine and PNG could reopen by the end of the year. And then later on... We are now free to report freely. It's World Press Freedom Day. We speak with Pacific journalists, hear stories of imprisonment, intimidation and their hopes for the future. PNG police are still searching for seven inmates who have been on the run for just over a week. 46 prisoners tried to jump a fence to escape West New Britain's Lakimata High Security Compound. 24 were successful. 16 were shot dead and one is in hospital. As Caleb Fotheringham reports, two of the prisoners who were killed were awaiting trial. Papua New Guinea's Correctional Services Commissioner Stephen Pukanes has just returned from Lakimata Compound where he was carrying out an investigation on the prisoner's escape and the action taken by correctional services. Mr Pukanes says he thought shooting the prisoners was probably not the right call. There may be other options to take, but in the escape where things happen in the blink of an eye, I think it's quite difficult. He says better decisions could prevent fatalities like this in the future. The prisoner who is in hospital is still in a critical condition. He was seen in a video speaking in Tokpisan, claiming correctional services executed six prisoners after they had surrendered. However, Mr Pukanes says elements of his story, like the location of the event, did not line up and believes the prisoner was coaxed into making the claims by the person who filmed the video. I personally had a chat with him. I think he was dazed. I think the one who took the video coached him to say what he did, and uh, I think this particular person who took the video is with the police now. Mr Pukanes says prisoners in Papua New Guinea have a tendency to escape. In October last year, there was another escape in the country. He says more money needs to be spent on rehabilitation to stop this from happening. I know it is very, very costly. In this country, it's hard to find that kind of money, but that is the only way in terms of reducing escape. And the other option is, again, it's based on trust and honesty between prisoners and officers. If we can allow more prisoners, especially those who are classified as low risk, to um, take more time going out to visit their families or do work uh, with their family and then coming back, especially on weekend leaves. I think that will uh, ease the burden that we're experiencing at the moment. He believes the prisoners on remand who escaped or tried to escape could have been waiting for two to three years for their case to be heard in court, but says many more wait as long as eight years. The company that will recommence operating the Pagera Mine in Papua New Guinea's Inga province is hoping to start work there before the end of the year. The new Pagera Limited is the result of two-plus years of negotiations between Barrett Gold and the PNG government, which had been seeking a bigger cut. 
Barrett Gold and its investment partner Zijin Mining will hold 49% in the new company, while the PNG government, the provincial government and the landowners will retain 51%. Don Wiseman spoke with the Barrett chief executive Mark Bristow in a wide-ranging interview, beginning with the perennial violence that plagues Inga. There's tribal fighting, you know, and I mean, we've just had another tribal fight this week, this last week. We've kept the hospital alive, we've kept the basic services, some electricity for children to study in the evenings, things like that in the village. But, you know, they keep killing each other. And so that's another part of this restart is, and I actually had a conversation with the Prime Minister about security. So in recent times it's been me that's gone there and met with the various uh, local leaders to talk about security so you know it's a complex situation and the question that i often have for the uh, so-called critics is that we can all run away as international investors from these sort of circumstances first of all you run away you open yourselves up for liability and particularly if you don't do the job properly and close everything properly as per your closure plan and secondly we've already employed a thousand people we're going to three and right now some of those people are not uh, no they don't find and they're not comfortable to come to to work and that's not right it's not right for a bunch of thugs to prevent people to earn a, a decent wage. And as you know, the mining industry plays really well compared to anybody else, particularly in Papua New Guinea. And also we, you know, we prefer local, local. We develop them, invest in upskilling our local employees. We want local businessmen. I mean, Polgra and its past have built the biggest private company in the whole of Papua New Guinea through its local development. And again, there's, you know, lots of, people in the anti-mining fraternity that pick up on anything and they've never even been to the mine. But the, the fact is, what you'll see is that the way I run Barrick is in a transparent way. And and again, we've built real relationships and we'll continue to do it. And the recent agreement, which is referred to by Nixon Mangapi, he, he feels that this thing compromised the landowners. is not true. The landowners' rights are protected within the original agreement. We haven't changed anything. And, and in fact, this agreement that we we signed recently, which you sent me a note on, was between Kumul BNL, which is Barrick representing the partnership with Zinjin, and the government. And it was to do about a road, a clear road to restart. And it specifically protects the the agreements that have been reached as, as far as the landowners go. And the allocation of equity to landowners in Pogra is by far more than any other mining agreement in Papua New Guinea. And again, it's in line with Barrick's philosophy about ensuring that all stakeholders benefit from our investment countries. When will you start, Mark? That's <laughs> so if you know anything about Papua New Guinea, that's a tough question to answer. But, you know, this year is... Uh, I'm pretty sure about that. You know, where we are at the moment now is following the NPCA. We have now in the process of moving the expiration license from BNL to New Pogra Limited and likewise the other SML to New Pogra Limited which will then be cancelled and a new SML will be applied for and we're in that process as we speak and on the back of that we will move forward then to the development forum which is a standard procedure but that can go in parallel and we are uh, currently uh, engaged um uh with the 
the finalization of the development agreement. And as soon as we get that authority from MRA, we'll move to the full restart. That's mining and processing. In the meantime, we've been doing a lot of remedial work and getting ready so that the restart can happen as quickly as possible. In Papua New Guinea, particularly I think in Bougainville, there's enormous quantities of gold, it would seem. And in Bougainville, there's a a lot of interest in restarting the Panguna mine. Is that something that Barrick would ever look at? Well, we've looked at it from time to time, and um, but it's still a very complex situation, Don. As you know, Rio's back in Papua New Guinea working on some legacy issues related to Bowenville. And, you know, there's an multiple persons, I guess is the right word, who are promoting and offering it to the market at the moment. Um, in the meantime, independent Bougainville uh, negotiation is ongoing. So probably the most difficult thing in, in any mining venture is to try and restart an old mine. And so, you know, that is that is a big restart risk. As for the rest of your question, you're right. This is a, a very endowed part of the world, particularly the um, Papuan Island, the big one, which goes into, you know, it's shared with Indonesia. And so, of course, our teams, our geologists are looking at opportunities and we will definitely commit to further exploration and evaluation of other opportunities. But as you can understand, for me, before we do that, it is important that we get uh, Pogra up and running. And then, and so uh, just like we're doing at Pogra, preparing for its future, we're doing the same as far as understanding the opportunities and the geology of the main PNG island, as well as these of various other satellites. The new look barrack, what are you doing differently in terms of the environmental waste, which is an inevitable part of your operation there? So there are two things to that. First of all, we've had a, a, an opportunity, expensive one, but anyway, an opportunity to evaluate the impact on the rivers. And and as you know, we, um, we discharge or we used to discharge uh, material from normal what we call waste material as well as the waste material out of the autoclaves which is oxidized so it's got a red color and and during this last two and a half years we've been able to monitor the river we monitored it for the last 30 years through CSIRO CSRO, uh, out of Australia and so we got a lot of very good data and and the tailings is reasonably benign with the it's stopping the mine stopping we're able to go back and see how it recovers and 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 certainly that confirms it the other thing is that unlike some of the other mines our discharge was relatively small about 10% of the particle matter in the river because if you're up in the highlands like this the constant erosion and landslides feeds these rivers all the time and that's why and and, and remember it's a seismic zone so that's why this is the safest way of discharging waste having said that you know we've got we're going underground we have gone underground, but you know, the future of Pogra, there's a lot of underground opportunity. Certainly the next 10 years, a significant amount of underground mining. So, and of course, that needs backfill, paste backfill, so a cement backfill. So we can put a lot of the material back underground, which is the right place to put it, and it's very safe. And then also we're looking at co-disposal of the autoclave waste in a mixed co-disposal, so with along with rock, which we can develop a much more stable uh, storage 
given the seismic risks in that area. And so that would potentially leave a very small component without any oxidation or anything that we could discharge, you know, in these erodible dumps that find their way into the watercourse. And we have been doing a lot of work on that, and we're quite far advanced. So that's a material improvement if we are able to prove that it's technically capable, which, you know, everything points to that, that fact at the moment. Journalists from across the Pacific are speaking out in an effort to raise awareness for press freedom. It comes as World Press Freedom Day is celebrated. It was launched by the United Nations in 1998 to remind governments of their duty to respect freedom of expression. In the Pacific, there have been some improvements since then, but journalists from across the region told Final Fonua there is still a long way to go. The motion is carried. And the act is now being repealed. This was the moment Fiji's parliament repealed the law restricting the rights of journalists in Fiji for more than a decade. Fiji Times editor Fred Wesley says those were dark days. It hung over our heads like the sword of Damocles, you know, forever threatening the very foundation of media freedom. So uh, with that uh, repeal, we are now uh, free to report uh, freely, uh, express uh, opinions freely. An editor was liable to a fine not exceeding $25,000 and two years in jail. The Media Industry Development Bill, or the Draconian Law as Fred calls it, was introduced in 2010 by Fiji's former Prime Minister Frank Bainimarama. Mr. Wesley says it instilled fear, and he was threatened with imprisonment. This was the reality of all of Fiji's media, if their reports threatened the national interests. So when the law was repealed earlier this year, he broke down in tears. I remember an overflowing of emotions that morning. I I remember memories came flooding back, all the years of fighting for the removal of the act. You know, it, it was overwhelming. I... I remember trying to keep the tears away, but it was, it was truly, truly emotional. A, a weight, you know, it, it was like a weight had just been lifted off my shoulders. Whilst Fiji's media is liberated, their Melanesian counterparts in Papua New Guinea are still threatened with state control. In March this year, a media act was drafted in PNG's parliament proposing the creation of a state body to regulate the licensing of journalists. Local journalist Scott Wythe says the PNG Media Council is challenging the policy. The Media Council is working through this, trying to restructure itself, trying to get everybody on board and to work through this so that the policy in its current form doesn't get through. I guess the overall picture is that we need a lot of help in terms of welfare of journalists, support going to journalists in terms of training, uh, so that is a message that we've conveyed to you know the policymakers. Meanwhile, press freedom appears to be undisturbed in Polynesia. For Tongans, it's a vast improvement from the past when journalists endured repressive media laws. Daimitonga editor Kalafi Moala was jailed in 1996 for contempt of parliament, and his paper was temporarily banned in 2003. 
Mwala says those days are now a thing of the past. It's so much better today. Nobody is in jail. Uh, nobody has been uh, persecuted for, for anything. There are uh, defamation laws that anybody can take uh, media to court if they feel they have been irresponsible reporting. But in terms of freedom to speak, freedom to publish or the broadcast, it's there in Tonga. We're enjoying it. In Samoa, there are concerns over accessibility to information. Complaints have arisen over late press statements issued by government. And in the 2021 general elections, several villages banned journalists from their district gatherings. Langi Kerasoma, head of the Journalist Association of Samoa, is hoping access to information will improve. We're still facing a lot of... Uh barriers in, in, in getting information, not only from the government and from other organizations that needs to be so that's one of our main uh, obstacles here. You know, freedom of the press is not something that is part of our culture. This is a new government and we hope to address it with the new government. While they do have an open door policies like the previous government, but there are still times that we they do give us around the runabout. In Micronesia, press freedom varies. Nauru's media landscape is heavily regulated. There's no independent media in the country of just over 12,000 people. And foreign journalists are required to pay a visa of 6,000 U.S. dollars. It's the opposite case for the Marshall Islands, where independent media thrives. Editor of the Marshall Islands Journal, Giff Johnson, says media independence is respected in both governments and society. The, the appreciation of most people in government and in the public about the importance of media freedom in the Marshall Islands, I think, is, is, is really good. And it, it's, it's meant that we have a, a fairly robust and, and open uh, ability to publish uh, what we want to publish. According to UNESCO, 87 journalists and media workers were killed in 2022, an average of one fatality a day and a 50% jump in fatalities from the previous year. Thank you very much to all our guests. That's Pacific Waves for today. To listen back, head over to rnzi.com slash programs or you can download us on Spotify, iHeart or Apple Podcasts. From myself and the team here at RNZ Pacific, kia manuia.